You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. really good to see you guys this morning. Uh, If you're a guest, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship. So uh, I am pumped to get to be with you guys as we continue our journey together in this series that we're entitling uh, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Uh, So I want to throw out a quote for you this morning. It goes a little something like this. Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know who you truly want to become. That's a quote from the famous or infamous, however you want to think of him, Steve Jobs. Uh, And it was posted on the wall at the Children's Museum Adventure last year, right across the hall from the aeronautics exhibit that explained the science of lift and thrust. And this sort of thinking is very common, right, in in our society, in the way that we all just kind of think about life. This sort of thinking of follow your heart is so ingrained in our senses that honestly, somebody without probably thinking twice considered it an equally factual enough statement to put beside an explanation of physics. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of different things that we mean when we talk about the heart. I know this. Uh, There's a lot of different things that we mean, but most often when we talk about the heart, we're talking about what we consider to be our deepest desires, right? Our deepest desires, our passions, our cravings, our uttermost longings, to say them in a different way. In Scripture, those impulses, excuse me, those impulses often go by another name, something called the flesh. Now, the idea that we've been picking apart for the past few weeks is that following Jesus is this life of fighting what Christians have for centuries historically called the three enemies of the soul— the world, the flesh, and the devil. And last week, we talked about the devil, whom we said was this spiritual being of evil bent on destroying the works of God. And we've been saying that his primary strategy is deceptive ideas that play to disordered, uh, disordered desires in a society that normalizes them. And we said, so last week we said that the primary way or the primary avenue that the devil works through is lies or deceptive ideas. And our nugget for this morning is going to be that those deceptive ideas are not random. Those deceptive ideas are not random. The devil is not trying, for instance, to get us to believe things like, hey, listen, Columbia was actually founded in 1785, not 1786. He's not trying to get us believe falsehoods like that, right? Because why? Because it has absolutely no bearing on our lives whatsoever. Rather, the devil is much more like a Russian bot on Twitter or that pesky, insidious little Facebook algorithm specifically targeted to advertise to you the things that you want or what the New Testament would call the flesh. And what I hope to do today is to help us understand what this idea biblically of the flesh is and how we as followers of Jesus actually wage war against it. That's where we're going to be going. To do that, we're going to look at together in Galatians chapter 5. So if you want to grab a Bible or open up your phone or whatever it is, uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 13 and we'll hit a big chunk of it. And this is going to be basically our anchor text for this morning. So let's read it all together and then we'll talk for a little bit. This is verse 13. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
And then a few verses later in verse 16, he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So the word flesh in the language of the New Testament, in the Greek, uh, is uh, pronounced like sarx, okay? S-A-R-X, if we were to transliterate it into our our alphabet. Uh, And based on the context, it can take different shades of meaning, much like words in English do. So sometimes when we see it in the New Testament, it can refer to our physical bodies. Sometimes it refers to humanity. There are even a few times where it refers to uh, our or your ethnicity, things like that. But most commonly, and in this passage in particular, this word refers to our desires or our cravings or our passions, as some translate it. New Testament scholar Timothy George defines it this way. He says that the flesh refers to fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing. Flesh is the arena of indulgence or self-assertion. Essentially, the way I like to think about it is the flesh is this little Veruca salt from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that lives inside of each and every one of us. That thing inside of us that goes, I want what I want and I want it now. And maybe also, and what's a schnozberry, right? Like, I want what I want and I want it now. Uh, A more straightforward definition put forward by another pastor that I follow put it as the flesh is the base animalistic drives for self-gratification especially when it comes to things like sex, food, pleasure, survival, power over others, and fear. It's this basic instinct of I want, or I must have, or I fear. And honestly, it's easiest to discern in children, like you can see this in children so plainly, uh, not because they're any more guilty of it than the rest of us, just they haven't learned the skill of hiding it yet, right? Like us grown adults have. So for example, like my kids will come downstairs in the morning and find out we're out of Nutella and they will just fall down on the ground weeping as though their little lives could not go on. They'll even offer up hunger strikes until this Nutella injustice has been rectified, right? Like this is just how they go. They can't handle not getting what they want, despite the fact that we have loads of other wonderful food to eat in our home. And this is how it kind of fleshes out in so many of us. But bigger picture, it's that selfish impulse that dwells somewhere within us that actually conflicts with the ways of God. It's easiest to think about in terms of outsized cravings for sex or power or food, but the flesh is really any desire, big or small, to do what I want, when I want it, as I want it, as opposed to what God wants, or what God says is good for me, or good for the world, or good for those around me. 
And in verse 19, Paul says that these works of the flesh, the actions birthed out of these desires within us are evident, that we know them when we see them. Like we know what they are when we see them lived out. And he rattles off this list. He says sexual immorality, which the Greek word here used for that is basically a junk drawer term for any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. But he says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, all of these things are the things that happen when the selfish impulses for pleasure or comfort or escape take priority in our lives. He says idolatry and sorcery, the desire to have the divine or the spiritual on our own terms to be used for our own purposes, including treating things that aren't God as though they were God. I mean, have you ever seen somebody chase after personal success as though it were the end all be all in life? This is idolatry. This is what we're talking about here. It says enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, the things that happen when we become the center of all of our relationships. When what we want or getting what we feel like we deserve or we being right or coming out ahead or being seen in a certain way are our chief goal and desire when it comes to our relationships with other people. These are the things things underneath all of our, underneath the surface of all of our office drama, right? These are the things that have likely torn apart many of the friendships in your own life. And regardless of whether or not you personally identify with everything on this list, the point here is that there is this pull inside of each and every one of us towards self-gratification that can come out in any number of ways. So let's say, hypothetically, it's been a particularly stressful week, right? I know maybe that's not you. Maybe it's just me. But it's been a particularly stressful week where there's tons of stuff on your plate at work. The kids' extracurricular activities have all reached that unique moment that they always seem to do where everybody has something to do every single night of the week and you're the one who has the responsibility to take them there. Not to mention that at your home, the dishes are stacking up, so you've got a laundry list of chores to do, including the laundry. It hasn't been done in a week, and so you're having to wear the exact same shirt you wore on Monday again, and to top it off, you got a big presentation at work, and you're trying to rush out the door and get ready to go, but you can't find your keys anywhere, right? And then your spouse looks at you as they might typically do and say, hey, you know what? This is the reason why we have a key hanger at the front door And in a moment of purely carnal catharsis, you just shout out, you know what? You're the key hanger at the door. Hypothetically speaking, of course. Not that I would have ever done anything anything like that, right? Uh, That's the flesh. As you look and you look at your spouse with that pulsating vein in their forehead and you think to yourself, where did that come from? Why did I just do that? What is going on? on with me. It's the flesh. Or for you working parents in here, you know that feeling that you have when you pull up in the driveway after work, that desire that, of course, you don't tell anybody about in polite company, but you definitely feel it. Where you're sitting in your car, engine running, you open up the garage door and you think, I really don't want to go in there right now. I really don't want to go in there right now. I want to be anywhere else but here, and you contemplate for just a minute backing your car out of the driveway and going somewhere where you can just chill and be by yourself and maybe watch Netflix for a little bit. That desire to run away from God, your God-given roles and responsibilities for your own personal comfort, 
That's the flesh. Or it's that part of you that sees the success of your peer at work, a peer you might even like and consider a friend. But that thing that sees their success and gets angry and jealous, that desire that wants what they've got for yourself and perhaps even wants them to fail or lose what they have. It's that part of you that makes you think about dropping that juicy nugget that you heard about some problems they were having in their personal life in the break room with your other coworkers uh, on your break. It's that part of you that gets angry when your ideas are disregarded or your opinions not listened to. That's the flesh. It's that part of you that desires to comfort yourself with food or that part of you that obsesses over what you eat and seeks to exert unhealthy control over it. That part of you that wants to watch porn or sleep around for comfort or release. That part of you that doesn't care to meet your neighbors. That part of you that doesn't care about the things of God. That part of you that just wants to sit your kids in front of a screen so you don't have to deal with them. All of that is what the Bible would call fleshy. Fleshy. A pastor I follow said his wife started actually using this term as an adjective. So on days when he was especially self-indulgent or ill-tempered, she'd say, you sure are acting fleshy today. I think that's just brilliant for what it's worth. Like, I absolutely love it. But the point is, is that this exists in all of us. This fleshy desire exists in all of us. As Paul says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the the flesh. These are opposed to each other and they keep you from doing the things that you want to do. He's saying that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are essentially a mixed bag of desires. We're a mixed bag of desires, some good and virtuous and some corrupt and evil. But there exists within us this tug of war or this tension or this war zone, so to speak, of desire that happens within us. And it's ongoing, day in and day out. So for example, maybe it looks something like, I wanna be a person who stays faithful to my spouse. I wanna be a person who's defined by faithfulness, but I also really want a divorce right now. I wanna honor the opposite sex, I do. But it sure does sound good to objectify them to fulfill my sexual appetite. And I'd kinda like to do that too. I want to have a great prayer life, but I also want to stay up late watching TV. I want to be like Jesus, but if I'm quite honest, I also want to do whatever the heck I want to do. I would contend that this is actually the primary battleground that we face day in and day out as disciples of Jesus. That the primary arena in which our spiritual warfare is engaged is this arena of the flesh, which desires will actually win out in our lives. And this is a bit of a complicated problem for us, especially us as Western people. The trouble specifically for us is that we tend to have a very complicated relationship with desire. We have a very complicated relationship. Here's what I mean. So the question that civilizations for thousands of years have tried to answer is, what is the good life and where is it found? To say it a little bit differently, how do we really flourish and thrive as human beings? How do we flourish and thrive as humans? Now, for most of Western history, Western civilization thought along the lines of the African theologian Augustine, who in the lineage of Paul here in Galatians posited that we are a mixed bag of longings or loves or desires, as he would say it, some good and some bad that are in conflict with each other. 
And his conclusion was that the key to the good life, to be a fully flourishing human, was about saying yes to the right desires and no to the wrong ones. That virtue was all about pursuing the good and starving out the bad. And generally speaking, this is how the majority of human beings throughout much of human history, especially in the West, thought about these things. But cut, but cut to some 1,500 years later, and in comes a guy named Sigmund Freud. And to be fair, lots of other people thought along the same lines as Sigmund Freud, but he's the one who kind of made this ideology popular. But Freud was a follower of Darwin's theory of, uh, that human beings are not image bearers of God, but highly evolved animals so that we were not created by God to pursue good. We were essentially just the product of time and chance, apart from any intentional design. And his thesis was that if that's the case, the most important desire you have, the key to your happiness and your flourishing as a human is your libido, which for Freud was more than just the, uh, the desire or the longing for sex, but it was actually uh, your driving impulse for pleasure in general. And in his view, the reason we are so messed up and so internally conflicted and wrestle with, so much, wrestle with becoming unhealthy is because our libido or our desires have often been repressed for too long. Meaning that if someone or something says no to what you want or says no to your truth or your authentic self, then that's the thing that is keeping you from happiness and flourishing. It's the repression of your desires. They need to be set free. Your problem is that the real you is being repressed. Now, it doesn't take but a casual observer to note that it is pretty clear that this is how our culture tends to think about our desires, that the key to our happiness is our desires fully and finally becoming fulfilled, indulging in the things that we want. As one ethicist, a guy named Robert C. Roberts puts it, he said, we have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct. Just as, in earlier, just as in an earlier time, it was thought never fitting to deny God. Now it feels never right to deny oneself. What our ancestors, for example, what our ancestors called chastity, which honestly is a word that like makes us cringe when we hear it now, right? What our ancestors called chastity, we call oppression if it's externally imposed or repression if it's internally imposed. What they called self-mastery, we basically now call sin. In our culture, it's essentially a sin to not follow your feelings. It's why that quote from Steve Jobs will be put right next to an explanation of physics because following your heart and being true to yourself seem as intuitively true as things like gravity. And so all this really means for us what this means for us is that we often come to the table with a radically different idea of flourishing and freedom than the Bible does. We tend to believe that true freedom or true flourishing is found in the absence of any and all restraint. That true freedom is freedom from all restraint, the ability to do and to live and to be and to love and whatever else, however we want, to be able to follow our desires, so to speak. But biblically speaking, that is not actually freedom. That's not real freedom. Real freedom isn't the absence of restraints, the ability to do and be whatever we want, but the presence of the right ones, the ability to do and be what we are made to do and be. So 
A classic story that I love to tell every time I bring this subject up with you guys uh, is a story about a youth pastor that I knew back when I was in college, and he was trying to teach his students about this concept. And so what he did was he brought out a fish and a small fish bowl, and he presented it to his students. And he asked, is this fish free? And of course, all the students were like, no, this fish isn't free. Are you kidding me? He's trapped. Look at that little bowl. And he was like, okay, okay. And so what he did is like, how about, what he said was, how about now? And he brings out a larger fishbowl and scoops the fish up and puts the fish into the larger fishbowl. The students, of course, look and they go, no, absolutely not. He's still free. It doesn't matter that it's a bigger bowl. What are you talking about? Whatever. He's like, okay, okay, well. And then he brings out a larger fishbowl and puts the fish into the larger fishbowl and looks at his students and says, well, how about now? And again, no, the fish isn't free. Free the fish. Free the fish. All of this kind of stuff. And so finally, he, he scoops up the fish into his little net thing and throws it down onto the ground and looks at his students cold, dead in the eye and says, how about now? Is the fish free now? And all of the students just looked at him horrified, just absolutely horrified as they watched this little fish flop to death on the stage before them. And he looks at him and he says, listen, true freedom is not in the absence of restraints, but in the presence of the ones that fit what you were made for. And those kids, after years of counseling, still remember that lesson. They still remember that lesson. And the truth is, is that we tend to have some framework for this in certain areas of life, right? Like with things like exercise or working out, like we'll look at self-discipline and self-control as positives in those arenas uh, because we can, we can see their benefit. Or perhaps it, we see that it gives me even some of the fleshy desires that I'm actually after. Or we'll see the effects of things like substance abuse and we'll think, well, of course, of course, some restraint is a good thing there. But the issue is, is that we, we tend to not bring that same mental architecture into other categories of our lives, like what we do when we get home from a long day at work, or when I'm grasping for control with my family or my job, or when I think about my spending, or my online activity, or my dating life, or my relationship with my spouse, or my roommates, or my life group, or my fill-in-the-blank. In those arenas, it tends to get really muddy for us very quickly. And the truth is, is what we fail to realize or what we fail to understand or fail to believe is that the flesh, no matter how it looks, it actually leads us to destruction. The flesh leads us to destruction. It never actually takes us where we want to go. As Paul says here in Galatians, he says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, for the record, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules and reigns, where all that sin has made wrong is made right, where humans dwell and flourish as they were made to dwell and flourish with the one whom they were made to dwell and flourish with. It's the place where life is as it should be. And ironically enough, the result of the unrestrained flesh is not life that is more full of what is good and fulfilling. It is not life as it was meant to be, not more of the life we want, a life full of what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. No, it's not a life that leads to eternal fulfillment or salvation, but rather to emptiness, to an ever-dissatisfied pursuit of pleasure and power and control 
more and more over and over again, a life of conflict and pain. Ironically enough, Freud got one thing right. With the flesh in control, we do wind up being more animal than human in the end. Or to say it even more directly and in the language of the New Testament, we wind up becoming more slaves than free. When the flesh is in control, we wind up being more slaves than free. Because here's the thing. Whatever controls us, whatever determines the things that we do is what enslaves us. Whatever determines what we do enslaves us. When we do things deep down that we don't maybe want to do, but we seem unable to stop doing them, that's slavery. It is. The person who has to watch porn every night before bed, the person who can't finish the day without a drink to take the edge off, even the person whose temper can't be constrained over the slightest inconvenience is enslaved. Now, it might be different than how we normally think of enslavement, but it is still slavery. And practically speaking, for some of us, when our flesh is in control, it will absolutely destroy our lives. When the flesh is ruling and reigning, when the flesh is determining what we do, we'll get fired, we'll destroy relationships, we'll develop addictions and all kinds of things. In fact, for those of us who struggle deeply with the flesh and know it, those of us who are there would probably contend that there are few things that feel more like we are truly wrestling with a power beyond ourselves. The cosmic powers of this present darkness or the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places as Paul would talk about them in another of his letters. And yet for some of us, our flesh might not practically destroy us in the here and now, right? In some cases, it might even make us seem very successful in the world's terms. But in the long run, it leads us nowhere we want to go. In the long run, it just leaves us emptier than ever, leading us to things like burnout and anxiety, insecurity and fear and loneliness and the like. And all of it, apart from Christ, eventually lands us outside of human flourishing and specifically lands us outside of the kingdom of God. Because when the desires of the flesh are king, Jesus cannot be. When the desires of the flesh are king, Jesus cannot be. And the flesh is a tyrant of a king whose rule is anarchy. And you may be thinking to yourself right now, like, I don't know, man, that that feels a little oversold to me at at this juncture. Like, I don't think giving a little bit to the flesh here and there is that negative. I mean, I just need a release from time to time, right? I just need to do something for me. I need a little bit of comfort. I don't feel like this is that big of a deal. It doesn't seem like it's really hurting anybody. Here's how I would try to help you see it. So let's take adultery, for example, because that tends to be one thing, at least in our culture, that we can all generally agree on is not a good thing, right? So let's take adultery, for example. No one wakes up in the morning in a happy marriage and cheats on their spouse that night. No one does that. Now, I'm sure there might be like one story out there somewhere, but generally speaking, nobody nobody does that. In every story of infidelity I have ever come across, the affair did not start with the act of adultery itself, but with a thousand little acts earlier. A thousand little acts earlier. Not with the decision to cheat, 
but with, the, but with little decisions all along the way. The decision to watch this movie or skip date night or make that seemingly harmless but a little bit flirtatious comment to my neighbor or whatever it was. There were a thousand tiny, even mundane compromises to the flesh made years, maybe even decades before, that set the stage for the affair to become the reality. And the same is true for something that we would consider less extreme, like jealousy. Every decision I make to compare myself to others and complain about what I've got and, or whatever it may be, more and more forms me into a person for whom jealousy eventually owns, a person who becomes incapable of rejoicing with those who rejoice, a person who winds up hating their own life, no matter whatever shape or form their life takes. And the truth is, is that the more you follow the flesh, the more you sin, the less bad you feel about it the less you feel bad about it, the more callous you become to it until it eventually hardens you completely and you are completely different than the person you thought you would be or wanted to even become. In the words of one of my favorite thinkers, C.S. Lewis, he says it this way. He says that every time you make a choice, you are turning that central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hell, a heavenly creation or a, excuse me, he, heavenly creature or a hellish creation. Should have just read it. <laughs> he goes on to say that those who choose to follow the flesh over the way of Jesus, in the beginning, they will not, but in the end, they cannot. In the beginning, they will not, but in the end, they cannot. Or as we like to say around here, the things you do, do things to you. Your decisions become your habits, and your habits become your character, and your character becomes your destiny. And when your character is driven by your flesh, destruction will be your end. But the question, obviously, is what do we do about that? Where do we go from there? If this is the battle that we're up against, if this is the fight we're in, how is the flesh fought? How can we actually move from a life defined by the fruit of the flesh to a life defined by the fruit of the Spirit? Let's look back at Galatians 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And that's big. Like freedom is what Jesus has for us. I want you to hear that. Freedom is what Jesus has for us. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by faith, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So Christ has called us to freedom. It is what he has come to bring to us, freedom. He is all about that in our lives. And if you are in Christ, what, he's, what Paul is telling us here is that you have crucified the flesh. You have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires, meaning the power of those things has been put to death through Jesus's death. 
This is what is true for you as a believer in Jesus, that the stranglehold of power that the flesh has over our actions, decisions, our thoughts, and our motives has been defeated by what Jesus has done. The answer when it comes to having victory over our flesh, the answer is not willpower or white knuckling our way out of certain behaviors. And listen, willpower is a good thing. It's a good thing and a needed thing, but it can only take us so far. The desires of the flesh are often more of an ingrained impulse than a conscious decision. And so what we actually need isn't strictly a change in conscious decision, but something or rather someone to change those impulses. And so very practically, the place that victory over the flesh begins is by coming to the one who is victorious over it, by coming to the one who overcame it and actually has the power to change it. We only stand a chance of victory when we are finally willing to tell the truth about ourselves. Do you hear me? The only way out of our plight is actually through it. What we have to do is face the reality of our flesh, deal with it, confess it. With the firm and caring support of God and his people, we have to rip our way through all of the denial and self-deception that we want to sow about our, our flesh and be honest about what our true desires are. To take that hard step, right? That first step from the famous 12 steps of AA. That to experience freedom, from our addiction, because that's what it is to the flesh, we must admit that we are powerless in and of ourselves to defeat it. And we need a power beyond us to deliver us from it. It seems paradoxical, I know, but the power to fight the flesh begins by admitting that we are powerless on our own, that we need an outside source from beyond us. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. That is exactly what Jesus brings to the table. And he will set us free that through the cross and resurrection, he doesn't only secure for us forgiveness from our flesh-driven sin, but also freedom from it. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Not simply to give us freedom to do whatever we want to do, that would to once again be submitting to the yoke of slavery to our flesh, but to be free, to actually flourish, free to step into the good life as God has designed, freedom to not be controlled by the flesh, to be able to say no to it and yes to the things of God, freedom to actually be what it means to be human, made in the image of God, to have the life we were made for. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because of Jesus's new life, you and I can have new life. For those who put their trust in Jesus, who believe in his life, death, and resurrection by faith in him and what he's done for us, like we are now by his spirit made into something completely new. The big theological word here is regeneration. We are made new. We are born again. If you are in Christ, you aren't who you were. You aren't who you were. You aren't shackled to what you used to be shackled to. You are made into something quantitatively and qualitatively new. New life new mind, new desires, new heart. 
It means new desires are the things that rest the deepest within us. They may not be the strongest desires all the time. They may not even be the loudest desires all the time, but they are the deepest. And that is good news. The power of the flesh has been broken. Now the flesh does not have to have power over you. And I want you to hear me say that this morning because some of you feel like you ain't got no choice. You feel so shackled to these things that you feel like there is no way out, but Jesus has called you to freedom. What what you think shackles you in Christ actually does not. So first we come to the one who has the power to change us. But secondly, we walk or we keep in step with his spirit. Now that might sound wildly unhelpful to you because we tend to turn that phrase walk by the spirit into something very mystical and feeling oriented, like some sort of like living on a higher plane of spiritual existence. Like like we just can't, like the normal person can't reach out there and get it, but that's not really what it is. The clearest picture of a life lived by the Spirit is Jesus' life. And Jesus' life was certainly filled with the supernatural and the miraculous, but it was also very earthy, very gritty, and very human. And for Jesus, walking by the Spirit was living every day, moment by moment, by the enabling power and presence of God's Spirit. It was something he intentionally cultivated and pursued. And so the way that we battle against the flesh is to intentionally and dedicatedly pursue the spirit, to purposefully position our lives to be shaped and changed by his grace, by his presence, and by his power. And that means a couple of things. It means turning away from the things that are not of God's spirit and cultivating space where the things of the spirit can actually grow. These are the things that historians have historically called mortification and vivification. Those are very big theological words, but they come from the Latin root, meaning to deaden and to live. A few verses later, Paul puts it this way, really simply. This is in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's an old uh, proverb, some say it's Native American in origin. I don't know if that's true or not, but it goes something like this. It goes something like, I find that there are two dogs fighting within me. One is evil and the other is good. And when I'm asked which one wins, I respond, the one that I feed the most. The one that I feed the most. And that is essentially what Paul is saying here, that in the fight between your flesh and the spirit, the one that wins is the one you feed. The one that wins is the one you feed. Part of what this means is that we we take intentional effort to starve out the flesh. Part of what walking by the Spirit is, is a conscious effort to deny the things of the flesh, what theologians would call mortification. As the Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Paul elsewhere calls this putting off the old self, removing certain behaviors or habits from our lives that feed the flesh. And I want you to hear me on this. Some of us are stuck right now in sin and the passions of our flesh, not because they actually have a hold on you, but because you make provision for them. You hear me? You don't consider it deadly. Oh, it's just a look here or a compromise there. 
Oh, it's just a little indulgence for comfort. Oh, we love each other. It's okay. As though sin were an extra scoop of ice cream. That's not really all that dangerous. What you've got to come to see is that the desires of the flesh aren't something to take lightly. They are dangerous and won't ultimately take you where you want them to go. And so part of what this means is that as God's people, walking with his spirit, keeping in step with his spirit is gonna mean putting in place the right types of restraints, the restraints that actually enable us to walk in freedom as God defines it, not as the world defines it. So maybe you don't need to have a TV in your home. Maybe you need to delete Instagram. Maybe you just need to get rid of the scale in your house. You might need to not go to bars or keep alcohol in the fridge. You might need to change the location of your office or even get a different job. Listen, I hesitate to get too specific because I don't know your particular situation, but the point being is that we must starve the flesh and kill sin. And if that means actions that seem extreme to the rest of the world, then so be it, then so be it. Bare minimum, I know some of us have struggles with anger and jealousy and pornography and alcohol and addictions and a whole host of other things that our life groups right now know nothing about. And for many of us, the first thing we need to do is gonna be to sit down with them and deputize them to help us fight the flesh in our lives. Some of us this week need to sit across the table from them and say, hey, y'all, This is what's going on with me. And I know it's killing me and not producing in me the life that God has for me in Christ, and I need some help. And there's power in that. That's actually the Christian practice of confession. We tend to get that confused with what we kind of associate with the Catholic Church, but that's not confession. Confession is way more like showing up to a dusty basement with a stale cup of coffee saying, hi, my name is Sally, and I'm an alcoholic. There is power in that confession. It helps free us. And this is what we want to do as life groups together, as we follow Jesus together. And so that's a place that's gonna start for us to walk by the Spirit. But also with that, it primarily means that we do things that open our life up to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We do things that open our life up to the Spirit's work in our life. And by this, I mean the spiritual practices that cultivate the soil for the Spirit's work abiding with the Spirit through God's word and prayer and fasting, which is literally a spiritual practice that targets the desires of the flesh, but also obeying the things that Jesus says, connecting our lives to his people, the church, worshiping, Sabbathing, serving, giving, all of these things that we teach All of the time, these are the things that shape and grow our affections for Jesus. These are the tools in the hands of God's spirit that open our eyes and enliven the realities of his love and grace and truth and presence in us. The flesh reigns, honestly, the flesh reigns in many of us simply because it is more alive to us than Jesus. The flesh reigns in many of us because it's more alive to us than Jesus. And that's the case because many of us have been lackadaisical about the things that help us see and savor his living presence and power in our lives. For instance, many of us think that worship on Sundays is like a morally good thing to do that occasionally makes us feel good. But what I hope you, honestly, what I hope you hear through this entire series is that worship is warfare. Worship is warfare. Community 
is warfare. Prayer is warfare. Reading the Bible is warfare. All of it is warfare. The way it works is the more we engage with the truth and grace of Jesus alongside the people of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, the more the spirit of Jesus produces his fruit in our lives. The more he loosens the grip of the flesh on our lives and brings life to our souls. The more we see Jesus for who he is, the more we experience the goodness of his presence through his spirit and grace, the more our deepest desires will actually become our strongest. And that's what I want for us. That's what we want to be as a church. And so let me just ask you a couple of questions as we close. Where are you in the battle against your flesh? Where are you? Is it even a battle for you at the moment? Is it even a fight? Or are you living under the delusion that the desire for self-gratification leads to the good life? Are you currently feeling owned or enslaved to it? Hear me, if that's you, come to the one with the power and the promise to free you. The power and the promise to change you. There is no sin, there is no addiction, no failure, no habit, no fear too big for him to heal. No one is too far gone, and that includes you. But also, where are you making provision for something that needs to be put to death? Are there any areas of your life where you're making provision for something that needs to be put to death? When it comes to the spirit and the flesh, which are you actually feeding and which are you currently starving in your life? But also, and probably more importantly, do you have hope in your battle right now? Do you have hope today for your fight with the flesh? Do you live like Jesus actually rose from the dead, conquering the flesh, and now has sent his very spirit to live inside of you to give you life and freedom. Is that your reality this morning? Because hear me, the flesh is indeed a powerful enemy. It is. One of which we will fight most of our lives. One, one of which many of you, I'm sure, are tired of fighting. But let me just leave you with this. Do not lose heart because the flesh is also a defeated enemy. It's a defeated enemy. Its power is not ultimate. And if you are Christ, his spirit dwells in you and you are not now and never will be alone in your struggle against the flesh. So do not grow weary for in due season, you will reap if you do not give up. Let's pray.